Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. One of my favorite voices um, and just a beautiful spirit and soul is joining us back at the table today. Um, my first path of crossing with her was uh, her book called Grounded a couple years ago. And I mean, it was just this earth shattering, uh, just turning over truth after truth of stuff that I'd known, but I hadn't really had the verbiage and the vernacular for it. She's followed that book up uh, with a new book called Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. It comes out in April and um, I'm so excited and honored that she's joined us back at the conversation today. And with that being said, Diana Butler-Bass is here. Diana, welcome back. Oh, you know, Ashton, anytime I can talk to you about what is good, truthful, and beautiful is a good day. <laughs> well, let's go. Let's go. That is what I'm talking about. I, uh, you know, I, I've, your work has been um, such a gift to me. I, I'm, I'm sure for many of our listeners, they would second that thought. Um but maybe for some of us that didn't hear the original interview that I had with you a couple of years ago or haven't crossed paths with you, uh, how do you introduce yourself and your work in the world? Oh, wow, that's a great question. I am on a, I have a vocation to help people see deeper hmm. in, into the world that we inhabit, to connect more fully with um, God, where and if they uh, find God, and if they are not God people, uh, where and if they find compassion and goodness and beauty and grace, mm. and, and then to help people not just rest in that, but to try to take, not to try, but to actually take those understandings and those connections and make them sing in the world mm. in such, such a way that we can live to differently and more graciously with one another and with the planet. Let's go. I mean, there we go. That'll that's a meal in itself. Um, <laughs> so you help us see. You help us connect to uh, the very dirt beneath our feet and the neighbors and the people that we've been entrusted in the world at large. Um, and that's so evident in your writings. You know, like uh, I, I love when you're in a book and it's just page after you just you you look up and you're like, how did two hours go by? Um, that's what happens to me when I experience your work. Um, and so you've got a new book coming out, Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. Um, I guess as we kind of have this conversation about gratitude and the book a little bit, what's the backstory? I know that in a way you had a little bit of a personal thank you note battle, uh, kind of an interesting, you, you begin the book in this thank you note conversation uh, that was happening. I guess, what's the backstory of the book and why this conversation today? When I, every time I write a book, the question always comes up, what's the next book you're writing? And um, I wish it wasn't that way. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great quote uh, from Harper Lee, you know, you're, who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, mm -hmm. you know, you're, or, Years So years ago, after she wrote that book, and it was a huge success, uh, someone said, what's the next book you're writing? And she literally looked at the person who asked the question and said, you know, in France, they pour a glass of champagne and celebrate books that authors have written. <laughs> <laughs> they enjoy. They don't say what's next. 
That's right. Uh, but I'm not French. And uh, people <laughs> always ask me what's next. And so what I tend to do is I take the book that I have just written and I let it marinate for a little bit. And I start looking around and asking myself, what are the unanswered questions of mm. the book that I've just put into the world? Mm. And so, so with Grounded, the unanswered question was, what difference does it make that God is present here with us um, in the world of nature and the world of neighbors? How do we practice that? What are the ethics and the spiritual practices that embody that in our lives? So I was thinking about that question, you know, what are mm -hmm. the spiritual practices of a truly grounded life? And it was about that same time that I was feeling in my own, and this is not in the book, this is just, you know, you asked me the question. <laughs> I, I was feeling in my own sort of experience that my life hadn't been as much as I wanted it to be. I mean, that might, might sound kind of funny. I've written 10 books and traveled the world and done all these wonderful things. But there have been some huge, really, professional disappointments. And I, I'm in my late 50s now. And I, I looked at my friends who are older than me. And I realized that you could do one of two things with that sense. Is that you could live with your regrets until you die in which case kind of not very good things happen to your personality. Or you could learn to be grateful for what did happen instead of worried about what didn't happen. Hmm. And so I realized I had a shortfall in gratitude myself. And that's what kind of threw me back. Uh, it was both a, the asking myself about meaningful spiritual practices of a grounded life and then looking at my own spiritual practices and realizing there was one that I was not very good at. And mm. I began to explore why that was. Um, why wasn't I very good at gratitude? And why was it so important? And so grateful emerged out of that intersection of my professional calling as a writer, and my personal reflection on being in my late 50s and wondering how the next couple decades of my life will be shaped. Well, well, you know, and I hadn't thought about kind of it being this follow-up conversation to Grounded, um, that once you have that sense of groundedness, once you identify with connection to nature, neighbor, um, the aftermath of that should be some form of gratitude um, and the aftermath of that, kind of where you take us down in the book, is that uh, it leads to greater connection, um, unity, compassion, uh, fruits of the Spirit, right? I mean, I think that um, I just love the evolution of Grounded to this book. Uh, it, it seems as though you're kind of <laughs> leading us saying, hey, once you, once you understand this and you're quote-unquote grounded in this, this will lead to this, and this is what, you know, in the end, we hope can help heal our world and bring unity and compassion and so forth. I think it's very easy. Uh, grounded was essentially a theology. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a theology that I opened up to people who might be uh, post-church, 
but also people who still remained within religious communities. And what, and I tried to help them understand why it was important to find God in the world. Yeah. And it was also a, an invitation to having a conversation with people who uh, come from a variety of religious traditions to ask questions of meaning and where we find the, the presence of God in the world. Yeah. Yeah. But when you write a theology, one of the things I think, it is always the temptation, you know, if you say, oh, I see that, or I believe that, or I agree with that author, and it's to stop right there, hmm. and to sort of rest in the sense where, um, you know, my theology is now in line, and I understand this truth, and maybe a few other people do, and to kind of become self-satisfied with that. Hmm. But the best of theology should always push us to that next step. And that is, okay, uh, this is a theological vision. This makes sense to me. Now what do I do with it? Yeah, yeah. And so, so grateful really is that furthering of the conversation and saying, well, what next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait. And this, this emerged as a really significant practice. Um, as a matter of fact, I have come to believe that it may well be the most significant of all the emotional and sort of ethical practices of a, a truly full spiritual life. I do not disagree. I mean, I, um, yes, I just say yes. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, um, I'm, I'm right there with you and you, um, you kind of begin the book with this idea. I think you wrote, that we kind of have two problems of gratitude right now, a me problem and a we problem. Hold my hand on that, because there was there was all kinds of data, and I can't remember the percentage, but 80% of Americans said that they felt grateful, you know, at least so many times a week, but why don't we sense this? Why don't we feel as though we live in the midst of a deeply centered and grounded and gratitude people? Um Hold hold my hand on this me and we conversation with the problem of gratitude. The the moment that really changed my the whole trajectory of this book uh, came in November of 2015. Now we can get our minds back that far and uh, remember that that's before the 2016 election. Yep. And I was just beginning to ask myself the question, you know, what kind of spiritual practices emerge from grounded? And I was also uh, looking at my own, reflecting on my own spiritual life. When all of a sudden this study came across my desk and it was from Pew Research Center. And the study was a question, have you in the last week felt a strong sense of gratitude? And 78% of Americans said that they did. They felt a strong sense of gratitude in the week before being asked that question. And um, I, I knew just enough about gratitude at that point to know that social scientists and psychologists and medical doctors all say that gratitude is really good for us. Hmm. That if you're a grateful person, you're going to be healthier, less have less stress, there won't be as much depression, you're less angry and anxious, and you have greater social ties. And so my first inclination was, oh, gosh, you know, (laughs) eight out of 10 Americans say that they feel grateful. That must mean that we're, you know, we're an amazing country. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. We're we're healthy. We're wise. We're socially connected. (laughs) All these kinds of things. And um, 
two days later, it, it was it was literally hilarious because I got another study from uh, some friends who work in another think tank, and it was about the emotional attitudes of the American electorate going into the 2015 election. And um, that study discovered that Americans were more angry, uh, less hopeful, and more divided than ever before. And so I looked at these two pieces of paper, two academic studies from two groups of people who do fine work. It's not adding up. And it, yeah, it, it it did not add up. And I, I eventually call that in the book, the gratitude gap. Yep. Yep. And so what I, what I realized as I was hitting my head against the wall about these two uh, sets of data is that we have in the United States largely privatized gratitude Mm -hmm. and that we have made it into a sort of a deeply personal thing and left the public implications of a grateful life, um, untended completely. So that then presented the idea of a book that would be structured around both the personal experience of gratitude and also the public, the me and the we. So there is, to my knowledge, uh, no book on gratefulness as a spiritual practice that connects those particular aspects. Yeah, the personal with the communal. The um, that's, that's right. The individual with the collective. You and I had this quote because I loved it. Whereas you write, "Might that be the problem that we have substituted a thin veneer of thanks for a radical, transformative experience of wholeness and connection?" Mm-hmm. Um. Once when I interviewed Richard Rohr, he was talking about the neuroscience of how if we don't savor things for at least 15 seconds, they don't, they don't actually stick with us. But like all, all of the negative energy, uh, pessimism, cynicism, it just sticks, you know, into our neurons, like he called Velcro. Um, could it be that like we don't savor, even though we say 80% of us say, yeah, I was grateful this week. Is it that we truly don't pause long enough to savor in these moments and then that allows us to go out and lead, leave, lead lives of radical, transformative, uh, wholesome connection out in the world. I mean, hold my hand on this because I'm trying to understand this gratitude gap, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm wondering where are where where am I going wrong personally? <laughs> that's that's not getting the collective greater good of all of us, um, leading with compassion and so forth. In the book, I draw both. I draw a chart that has two dimensions on it, and so there's the we and the me, the the um, communal and the 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 personal. But there's also another axis, and that is about feelings and actions. And so, if people who are listening to us can imagine a a grid or a the way I draw it in the book is as a pie with four four pieces you know four it's cut in quarters and so the so you have me and my feelings me and my actions we and my feelings and we and our actions 
And so there's the, the personal feelings action and then there's the public feelings action. And, and so the, the discovery for me uh, was that, I mean, the way Pew even phrased the question, have you in the last week felt mm. grateful? You know, have you felt grateful? And when you ask people the question that way, um, yeah, people feel grateful. You know, if somebody holds the door open for you, yeah, I was really grateful because I didn't have to put my bags down or, you know, deal with the, the, the baby carriage, you know? Um, and so, yes, I felt this moment of thanks. Uh, but the issue for us in our, our personal lives is how do you take that, that randomized moment of surprise, of awe, of wonder, of relief, of appreciation, whatever it is, that is very ad hoc, and then transfer that into a sustained set of actions. And so I think that's what Richard Rohr is talking about, you know, is that the act of savoring something is paying attention to it. And so if you take, if you take the moment you feel grateful and you write a thank you note about it, you're taking a momentary thing, which many of us feel but then you're putting body and substance around it. Mm. And so you're having to pay attention to it. Yeah. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, you know, thank you notes, keeping a gratitude journal. Uh, res- I, I, a lot of people do find those journals very helpful, you know, keeping lists of things they're thankful for, uh, writing thank you letters and notes. Um, I keep a little rock by my bed, it just says it's a river rock and it has the word great gratitude, um, carved on it. And, um, every morning I wake up and I see that first thing and I remember to say something I'm grateful for. Mm. And so I'm, I'm paying attention. I'm savoring that moment of waking up and saying, Oh, I'm alive today. Or the sun is shining today. Or my husband's not snoring as much. So maybe his cold (laughs) is going away and I'm really grateful for that, you know? (laughs) And so, so there's all kinds of ways that we can yeah. savor, savor the moment. Yeah. Um, and so, so that's what most gratitude books are about is that slowing down of the, the process from the momentary feeling and creating a more sustained practice. Hmm. Yeah. And don't so, you, and, and wouldn't you say in your experience of writing the book that um, once you once you're given the eyes, once you want the eyes, I, I think that's even a conversation too, to, to want to see places in the world where you can be grateful, to lose the lens of cynicism and pessimism. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you think that it, it becomes more available? And by that I mean, it's not like you come home and you go, well, I didn't get a raise today, or I didn't, like, I didn't, this big thing didn't happen. You start just a random flower catches your eye and it ignites this beautiful thing within you. The sun hits your skin in just a perfect way. Like it invades the mundane and the ordinary. Um, and, and then it becomes just so consistent throughout the day rather than putting it on this, this big thing that, you know, needs to happen each day or you didn't experience this huge high. Did you find that, that by studying this, being in rhythm with it, looking for it more often, that it showed up more and more the more you came to truly know and experience 
what gratitude truly is. Yes. The more you see gratitude and the more you understand what it is on very deep levels, the more it shows up. And uh, it reminds me of the, you know, the little quip that sort of runs around the culture. My friend Rob Bell uses it a lot. Once you see, you can't unsee. That's right. Yep. And and that's really how gratefulness works. And um, in the book, I mean, people should not be under the impression that I'm any Pollyanna about this, um, <laughs> because I write about some pretty devastating things in the book yep. uh, about my own experience, about suffering, about losing a job, about a friend who was in his 40s with young children who was diagnosed with cancer. And so I'm not just saying, you know, oh, let's all be grateful and our problems will go away. Because I think that some people do treat gratitude almost like a secular prosperity gospel. Mm, Yeah, just be grateful. Yeah, that's right. Just be grateful and everything will be better and uh, your life will be a lot. You know, you'll get what you want out of life. And um, that's not the way that this works. Um, As a matter of fact, in the my frame for all of my work is that I'm a very serious Christian and I'm trying to present Christianity in a way that is unexpected and different than what most people would have heard um, in American culture. And there's a very popular verse that people love to quote from the New Testament, in everything give thanks. And so oftentimes you would hear this, at least I would, when I was in conservative evangelical churches when I was younger, you'd hear that verse quoted at uh, people who had been through very tragic things. Mm -hmm. I remember a friend of mine who was actually raped and um, her friends turned around to her and said, well, you know, in everything, give thanks. Mm. You know, it's like, well, why don't you punch him in the face? You know, that's not right. And um, what's fascinating is that we have misunderstood the, the, the preposition. And um, it doesn't say, for everything, give thanks. Mm. It doesn't say give thanks for the moment when 17 kids are shot dead in a high school. It doesn't say give thanks for a terrible, horrible act of violence that's committed against you. It doesn't say give thanks for a divorce or for having somebody unjustly fire you from a job. It doesn't say that at all. It says in. And so the promise of gratitude as a deep sort of transformative spiritual practice in our own lives is that when really crappy things happen to us, that even in the midst of that, there is some capacity of love and compassion and wonder and awe. And so, and so in the early sections of the book when I'm talking about this, I draw off of Ellie Wiesel, who, uh, the Holocaust survivor, talks, right. talks about how the people who survived uh, the camps, who were people in his experience, were the people who were able every single day when they were in Auschwitz to find one thing to be grateful for. That's, and that, that, that's in. And that's in, <laughs> yeah. not for, you yeah. know. Yeah. Nobody is grateful for the Nazis and nobody is grateful for Auschwitz. Um, but when you're in that moment, there still is life. Mm. There still is the capacity to hold 
the hand of another living thing. There's the capacity to see a bird fly across a field of death and re- remember that one day there, that, that you might fly as well. Wow. And, and so, so that's what uh, Vizel, who no one ever accused of being a Pollyanna, um, saw as the way of survival and even in some odd horrifying sense even of a spiritual thriving that emerged for the people who were in the worst of all of life's circumstances uh, so, so when you talk about the me and the we you know I think that it's challenging enough on a personal level to understand that yeah. but many people do get there and I, I know people have extraordinary uh, spiritual practices around gr- gratefulness who are amazing people. But I began to ruminate on the second question, and that is if this works for individuals, would it, would it function in the same way for us as families, as mm-hmm. communities, and as a body politic? Mm-hmm. Which right now we desperately need to find gratefulness um, in and through uh, the moments that we're in. These are very difficult times. And I am not grateful for much of what's going on right now, but learning to find gratitude in it and finding new connections with one another may be a pathway of salvation. Yeah, yeah. This This is really a posturing conversation, isn't it? That, um... I think one of the big ahas I had in the book is that posturing yourself in the place to receive before you can give experience and share gratitude. That the goal of this book is you not writing to go achieve a grateful life. Um, this you, you begin in a place of openness to receive, to receive the moment, to receive whatever in the moment, and and there you can then start to live out and be in a unique, beautiful way in the world. And and I think connected to that, you kind of had the debt and duty versus gift and response, which was just, I had never had, the, I had never thought of it in that way of someone did something nice for me. Now I do something nice for them um, mm-hmm. compared to receiving a gift and then out of receiving that gift, how I respond in the world, how I show up in the world. Um, you want to break down kind of those two differences when we talk about gratitude? A startling moment was when I realized that I had been mistaught about gratitude by my mother and my grandmother. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and it's not because they're bad people or whatever. They were telling me a sort of a common folk wisdom when they said it's better to give than to receive. And that's a real problem when we think about gratitude, in a, particularly in American culture, is that we tend to want to understand ourselves as givers and not receivers. Hmm. Um, a lot of us have a real trouble receiving gifts yep. Um, yep. because we don't know what to do with them or how to, how to really respond to it because we'd rather be in the position of the giver. Because uh, in American society, being a giver is actually a more powerful thing. Someone it's is a, now indebted to you. Right. Yeah. And yeah. and you have been able, as a giver, in some way to display either your kindness or your wealth or your consideration or your, your own abundance. Um, 
And so you like giving because it makes you feel good because you've, you, you've achieved something there, whether it's emotional or economic. Um, and people notice. So it's better to give than to receive. The truth of the matter is in all of the world's major religious traditions, so I don't even know where that old adage comes from, <laughs> is, is that um, everyone receives before we can give. It's a universe there, of abundance. That's right. There is no such thing as a human, a human being who is not, first of all, a receiver. Yeah. Because we, don't e we, we receive our lives. The first act of being human is being born into the world, which is a gift that you get from god or your dna or your mother's suffering or you know a, a sexual act performed by people who were present in the world long before you hmm. um you you do nothing to get the first thing your, your achievement didn't get you here no your first <laughs> life is a gift yeah and so the very first thing, the very the the ultimate disposition of every human being is that of a receiver. And so if we understand that we are first of all those who have benefited by a gift, um, we are no longer we can only give what we have already received. That's right. That's right. So so gifting or giving comes second after receiving. And um, then the issue is, you know, okay, we give a gift. And if you understand yourself as a receiver, you also understand that everyone else is a receiver. There's a sort of a fundamental humanness and humility that's built into this process. And you expect nothing in return. Yeah. And that's the structure of gifts and giving and gratitude. That's the Hebrew scripture. It's also the New Testament. It's built into Islam, it's built into Buddhism and Hinduism and Sikhism. Every great world tradition says that, that we are, first of all, we receive. And so you might, like I said, think it's God or DNA or whatever, but there you have it. Yeah. We're, receiver. We're receivers. But we have structured the world as if givers are in charge. Mm. And so... Givers, you know, basically are powerful people who sit at the top of social pyramids and they have more stuff than the rest of us, whether it's political power or money or, um, like I said, kindness actually can be something or just sort of their ideas of, of benefits, you know, things they want to spread to others. They have more. And then those of us who receive are beneath givers in that social pyramid. And so we're at the sort of mercy of givers to share those gifts. They give those gifts, and then our obligation is then to respond to them. And that's why a lot of people don't like getting gifts, and they don't like gratitude, because they feel like it puts them in debt to others. That's right. That's right. Joy, yeah. As, joy isn't in the calculation there. No. And what, so what, what we've done, what essentially is an invisible argument that we're having right now in our culture is between these two structures of gratitude. On one hand, there's a structure of debt and duty. That is, there are benefactors 
who give benefits to beneficiaries, and then the beneficiaries are indebted to the benefactors. So we have that whole structure of the ben- ben- the beneficiaries should be grateful for the benefactors. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And can never really say anything against benefactors. And oftentimes benefactors give gifts in order to control people. Because if you give a gift to somebody, they're going to be less likely to criticize you or less likely to vote you out of office. Or they're going to be more likely to think well of you and, and all those kinds of things. So gifts in the debt and duty structure, gifts are often given to control other people. So they have motives attached. Um, and, and those motives make people who have been given gifts feel bad. Um, but because of the structure of it, you're required to respond. So that's what debt and duty gratitude is. The alternative is the one that I just explained, the one that is from the world's great religious traditions, and also I think is present in humanist and more general spiritual traditions, and that is we're born as a gift into a universe of abundance, and that because our first act is the reception of life, is the receiving of a gift, that the rest of our lives should be about the sharing and passing on of gifts with no expectation of return. And that that's what I call gift and response gratitude rather than debt and duty gratitude. And so on a communal level, the question, I, I, the question begged itself, as it were, do we live in a culture right now of debt and duty gratitude or do we live in a culture right now of gift and response gratitude? And which would we rather live in? Yeah, yeah. And how the world would be shifted by one by one as we wake up to what we have all individually and uniquely received and how we can respond into the world and through the world with the, with that beautiful gift that uh, is so very abundant. And for all of us, it's in different ways. Um, but honoring that uniqueness for all of us and saying, what does that mean for you, the individual? It has to lead to some type of unity, compassion, and beauty for all of us. Right. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's startling to see how often, you know, that our politics becomes politics of that debt and duty. Mm-hmm. And there's actually, you know, language for it. We say things like, I owe you a debt of gratitude. Or the corruption of politics in terms of debt and duty is quid pro quo. Scratch my back, I scratch yours. That's right. Yeah. You know, I give you this, then you have to give me that. And if you don't, I'll never give you another gift again. And so that is really the structure of American politics right now. And it's a bit of a downward spiral when you think about it. It's a complete downward spiral. Yeah. And people are very upset about it, but haven't had the language to talk about it, yeah. Yeah. Um, especially in terms of, of gifts and, and generosity and gratitude. And so what we're, do- we're done is we're stuck in this quid pro quo kind of moment where people sort of dreamt of a benefactor who would be untouchable. And so that you'd have a good benefactor at the top of the system who would not be controlled by any obligations of debt. Um, but because the whole structure is a, based on a false understanding of reality, that can never be. There is no such thing as a pure benefactor who would work for people with no motives whatsoever. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but the and that's what the what Jesus actually taught. Yeah. Um, so where would we rather live? Would we rather live in that kind of culture? Yeah. Um, or would we rather live in a culture where um, gifts are shared and stewarded around um, a community that's structured less like a hierarchical sort of pyramid of benefit and more like a table of grace. Yeah, yeah. And it's just a scarcity and abundance conversation. That's exactly right. More than anything. Yeah, because the debt and duty structure is based on the idea that gifts are scarce. Supply and, and demand. Right, and that those gifts have to be given to the right beneficiaries and handled by only certain kinds of benefactors who know how to distribute them. Mm. Um, but if we live in a universe of abundance... And I do think especially Christians have a very hard time talking about that because they tend to think of it as the prosperity gospel or they tend to think of it as new age, but it's actually just the book of Genesis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it was good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's It's really good. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. It's really good and it's really all there. Yeah. And so I love the poet Wendell Berry reminds us of that so beautifully. He says, everything we need is here. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a statement of ultimate abundance. Yeah. Everything we need is here. So can we live in that and understand that gifts move freely through a universe of abundance? And sometimes they sort of land at our place at the table. And when they do, we say, oh, my gosh, thank you. This is utterly amazing. And then we turn to the person next to us and say, can I share? Let's go. And that, yeah, and that's the world that people are longing for. Yeah, yeah. And the design and, of how reality works in its purest form. Yeah, and it's the it's the vision behind the the faith traditions that we say we believe in, and the and the even the best part of it is people constantly accuse me of being overly idealistic. Oh well, that would never work in real life. Um, but the truth of it is is there have been some interesting moments in American history where we have really pitted the vision of the table of gifts over and against the pyramids of control. And, for example, the most primal myth about America and gratefulness is our vision of Thanksgiving. And as soon as you say America and Thanksgiving – The picture that comes to everybody's mind is the idea of the European colonists sitting at a table with the native people sharing food. Now, it didn't work that way, and it is a myth, but you know what? That people could make up that myth Hmm. only goes to show that there was a longing to set a table in the wilderness where different kinds of people could gather and not compete. And there's that is at the very core of what the first vision of America was supposed to be all about. We didn't do it, but if somebody envisions it, it is actually possible. Well, well, yeah. Once you can frame that mindset of moving out of comparison, critique, competition with the hope of connection, the hope of unity, the hope of compassion. Um, 
you really, really do start to swim in a new world of abundance. The world that's always been there, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a, it's such a lighter and brighter experience. It's, it's kind of the best way I can phrase it is you have to long to want to see this world. You have to long to want to see a table of connection. And when you do, every moment becomes fully charged and electric uh, with possibilities. Um, yeah. And the debt and duty structure of gratitude, the, the corrupted, what I call in the book, the corrupted structure of gratitude. It's not good because it's mutated into quid pro quo. It's not truthful because there is no deep spiritual tradition that says that this is the truth. And it's not beautiful because it has harmed people through time by diminishing the gifts and the humanity of others in favor of increasing the wealth and privilege of the few. And so we've been trapped in a a false system of gratitude, a a false structure of gratitude, which uses the language of gratitude towards ends that are hurtful and not life-giving. And so the moment is really in front of us right now, is can we free our own personal lives from that kind of corrupt understanding of gratitude? And then secondarily, can we work together to create an alternate vision of politics? And when I talk about that, notice it's not about left and right. It really truly is about goodness, truth, and beauty. And the kind of world that we really want to live in. And to go away from the, the, the false narratives that have worked to destroy us and separate us and cause us to be angry and so, so, so completely hopeless and move toward something that is renewing and life-giving and welcomes the future with open arms. So that, that's what my work is about, trying to help people navigate that. And gratitude is one of the trajectories toward um, a table of real hopefulness. Hmm. That's beautiful. I don't want to add anything to that. That's awesome. Um, wow. Well, so, Diana, when does the book come out? Uh, the book uh, releases on April 3rd, which may or may not be when people hear this podcast, April 3rd, 2018. And um, I'm very excited about it. It's a perfect kind of spring book. Uh, because it calls us to uh, see what is coming up from the hard earth beneath our feet and uh, to uh, water and plant new ways of life. Mm. And uh, so so I hope that people will find their way to it and find hope. Your metaphors speak to my Enneagram 4, that's for sure. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I can't get enough of it. Well, it's so wonderful that you care about these things, Ashton, and that you're asking, you know, your friends to engage them as well. Things like this give me genuine hope that there is this kind of deep spiritual longing all around us and that people want to get past the anger and want to get past the fear that has really um, frozen us in place. And, And right now, you know, how in the world 
are we going to ever move again together? Yeah. You know, yeah. in any meaningful way as a, as communities and people with a shared sense of vision and compassion for the world. So I I I, I care about that really deeply because I'm a mom, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and a friend, and I, I want I want the world to be a, a much better place. And we can do this. We right. we can do it. That's right. It begins with us. It's an inside job. And, um, um, indeed. And and from there, the 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 degree to which uh, your interior world can start to see with fresh eyes uh, is the degree to which you will start to see the world you've been entrusted in the world at large. Um, all of us coming to the table, right? There's always room for more. Absolutely. Um, and, I used uh, to say that in college. We used to have a little saying when anybody would walk up to us in the college dining hall with their tray, you know, and they didn't know where to sit. And we'd always look up and say, there's always room for one more. Mm, you guys somehow, are my people. Somehow the table would always expand. And there, and before we knew it, there were 25 or 30 people at di- a dinner that had started with six. Wow. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yeah. Well, you know, and see, that actually points us to the depth and the power of these stories as they appear in places like the New Testament. Because the, what you and I are talking about is exactly what Jesus talked about. Mm-hmm. Jesus talked about a universe of abundance. What do we think that story of the feeding of the 5,000 is about? Right. Do we think it is about Jesus, like, turning his back and miraculously creating a bunch of fish? Um, no, what it was is Jesus opened that that community up to a vision of abundance Hmm. is that what looked like there was not enough food to feed 5,000 people became enough food to feed 5,000 and it was not just because there was a guy there was waving a magic wand it was because abundance could be seen through the teaching and the person of Christ that's the point of that story and so every time we have a saint story it like uh, St. Bridget uh, with the miracle of, of uh, lakes of milk in Ireland or something to that effect, you know, is that every time you have a, a miracle story about feeding or unexpected, the manna in the wilderness, those are always the reminder of gifts yeah. and of abundance. And those are, those are dominant stories. Right. The base within. note, the consistent theme weaved throughout it all. That is exactly right. And so so people who claim to be Christians in particular, um, uh, as most people still are more or less Christian in the United States, even though we're much more diverse than ever before. But people who are Christians should should know this and um, and should be functioning in that that set of narratives, Um, not a set of narratives about debt and duty. Those debt and duty narratives, those are the narratives of slavery those are the narratives of Pharaoh and of Caesar in the New Testament. And frankly, that's the, those are the bad guys <laughs> in the Bible. <laughs> the bad guys in the Bible Don't believe do in, it scarcity, this way. in scarcity, right? Yeah. And, and the, the good guys in the Bible all believe that God is the creator of a universe of abundance. Hmm. Welcoming all peacemakers known for generosity, compassion, empathy. Um, let's hope that's what they say about us, right? And may, maybe we can start seeing with a grateful spirit that leads to grateful eyes, that leads to grateful feet and, hand, 
feet and hands in the world. Um, Absolutely. And um, man, well, hey, on behalf of all of us, thank you for you. I'm grateful for you and your work in the world. It's beautiful. Uh, it is, um, it's leading to healing and uh, more compassion and more goodness, truth and beauty. And so, hey, just keep doing it. And you are welcome at our table any day, anytime, name the place, and we will hit record. Because I know all of us here at Good, True, and Beautiful are big, big Diana Butler Bass fans. Well, thank you so much for for reading my words and thank you for creating conversations that matter. It makes a difference. And uh, I'm, I'm equally grateful to you, to all those who are eavesdropping on us and uh, Hey, let's do this. Let's be thankful together. That's right. And don't forget April 3rd, everywhere. Good books can be bought and sold. I'm sure you can find it on Amazon. I'm sure you can go to Diana's site, Google Diana Butler Bass. You'll find it. Um, get this latest book. It's beautiful. You'll love it. And it will create a meaningful change in your world. Diana, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, will you come back again? Oh, yes, awesome. absolutely. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. Hey, before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe right there on your phone. That's probably where you're listening. Uh, And if you enjoyed this, would you mind leaving us a review? One of the things that we're wanting to do is get this information out to as many people as we can. And we are finding that uh, when people leave good, true, and beautiful reviews, uh, that helps us get this information out more and more to people all across the world. I do not take it lightly. Uh, that you invite me to ride shotgun with you in your car. Uh, You allow these conversations to be a part of your jogs. You allow these conversations to be a part of the communities and families and businesses that you've been entrusted. Uh, I do not take that lightly at all, and I am thrilled uh, that you have joined us here at this table, at this conversation. There's always a seat left. There's always room for more. Uh, And we are just so grateful for you guys joining us here at Good, True, and Beautiful. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid, listen to the bluebirds sing, and be loved.